0: But sharpen iron. This is the Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. So, we're gonna spend the next few weeks talking about hell, and I do air quotes, and I'll explain that later. Alright? I'm gonna start by saying Romans six, twenty-three. <clears throat> if you do want to turn there, I'm just gonna read the one verse there, and then we'll then we'll be in a, a couple of. We'll be all over probably. <laughs> now the reason the reason why I haven't addressed this topic yet is because this what we have to establish today. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of more historical teaching. But I was able to get it, narrow it down to just a couple of pages. And I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't want to spend all Sunday morning just giving you history. You know, I want Bible stuff, you know. Uh, so that's the reason why. Because we have to establish something before we can actually talk about hell uh, in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so Romans 6, 23... Here we have Paul, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? So we see two things here. Death and eternal life, right? Sin equals death, but those who believe in God and have been placed in Christ have received this free gift of what? Right. Eternal life. All right. So most of us, we've all been taught. We know. OK, I don't have to give you the the view. All right. I, I said I would always give the different views. I, I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining this. All right. We've been taught and I'm not saying this isn't true. Um, I mean that there's I'm not saying that there's not a hell. OK, that's what I mean to say. All right. Uh, I think it's different, though, than what we've been taught. We think of this place, fire, brimstone, the gnashing of teeth, the weeping and wailing, and just all this stuff. We also have this, people will say that Satan's in control of it. He's not in control of it. He's not in control of anything. To make him control of it, that to be his place, that would make him something, and he's not anything, right? He can't be in control of it. All right? So, this is the traditional view all right is called eternal conscious torment all right and this is in most protestant traditions okay and it's that there's this place created by god for the punishment of the devil and the fallen angels if they were fallen angels that's a whole other thing too but that's matthew 25 41 but this is place created for them by god all right and those whose names are not written in the book of life. Okay? It's the final destiny of every person who does not receive salvation, where they will be punished for their sins, right? That's what he and I always make a joke, it's probably not, not funny, but it was so hot Monday and Tuesday and I'll be like, I would never survive in hell. It's <laughs> bad joke, right? It's a dad joke. Uh but it was so man, it was miserable, right? And you we hear those sermons too, right? It's be so hot in the fire and the bread, like you think it's hot out there, like wait till you get to hell. It's like what? But here's the thing, okay? Dying and continuing to live forever for both the believer and the unbeliever presuppose that humanity, that mankind have souls that are immortal. Alright, so my thought process has always been if the free gift from God, okay, that we just read for being in Christ is eternal life, which is immortality. Then those who go to hell for all eternity are also receiving immortality as well. Right? In other words, that simply cannot be the case because only believers receive this gift. Okay, tracking with me? Eternal life, immortality. This is the gift for those who are in Jesus. Unbelievers, go to hell for eternity. That's immortality, right? Where's that, where's that at on the scale, right? So sins, wages are death, not eternal torture, but death. God's gift is eternal life. Okay? So it seems like the options here are death and life. Okay? So if the lost were to suffer for all eternity, why didn't Paul say that? He could have said it. The wages of sin are eternal conscious torment. But he didn't. So he couldn't have meant that. Paul never talks about eternal conscious torment of the destiny of the lost. Okay? So tackling this topic then on hell has to include this issue of the eternal soul. We have to get this pinned down first before we can go into further detail. All right. We need to know whether or not humanity is indeed created with a soul that is immortal. All right. So I could be very, very lengthy. Like I said, (laughs) very lengthy on this and very exhaustive because that's kind of my thing, right? Lots of detail. Uh, I'm always providing so much detail. I I leave very little room for disagreement or, (laughs) or a rebuttal. Okay, um, that's my thing. It's what I do. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little bit of information historically to at least get a better understanding, and then then you know then we'll go into a little bit more scripture. But I'm going to just go ahead and start with some scripture here. First Timothy. Chapter one in this, uh, this is going to give us the answer part. It should be clear, but it, there's two scriptures that should give us the answer to the question. Is man immortal? Do we have an eternal soul? All right. <laughs> you get a kick out of me. Don't? <laughs> All right. First, Timothy. Uh, Chapter 1, like I said, 15 and 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the, the foremost. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But I, that's Paul, received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those Who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Now, I'm just including all this for context, okay? So, to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And now, 17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Immortal. That guy, right? Who's he talking to about? God, right? Go to 1 Timothy 6. Am I yelling? I feel like I'm yelling, right? <laughs> Am I kind of loud? Sorry. First Timothy 6, 13-16. Again, just for context here. <clears throat> He's, this is Paul to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is His testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession... To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until uh, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in un- unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Who alone has immortality? You think that would be open and shut case for most of us. Why are we always insistent on. Like even if you're not a believer. Most of us have grown up with. Someday you're going to die. When you die you're going to one or two places. Because why? Because you have an eternal soul. You live forever. I mean, this is pretty across the board, universal, right? But those two verses that I just shared, right? There it is. The Godhead alone has immortality. And this is shared as a gift to those who believe in faith alone, right? In grace alone and placed in Christ. So the Christian receives the soul, if you will, a soul that is immoral, which means it is not universal. OK, so this the doctrines of eternal torment are the product that began with the acceptance of the pagan doctrine of the eternal soul. OK, once it was accepted that man had a nature that could not die it would just naturally follow then that his punishment must also be eternal. So if the souls of the wicked were eternal, then punishment must also be eternal. So a place of eternal torment was created, and we call it hell. Now, I'm not saying again. Just You're going to have to stick with me in the next couple of weeks, okay? The reason why I say that, put it in the quotes like I did earlier, is because you may be surprised to learn that the word "hell" is not in your Bibles. You may think it is because you have English Bibles. Hell is not in the original language of the Bible. Okay, if you see it in your Bible, it's a bad translation. Okay, in the King James version, hell is mentioned like fifty-four times. All right, and when we read hell, all kinds of these these. Images in our mind's eye pop up, right? So let, let me just give you an example of this, okay? But Psalms nine seventeen in the King James, it says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Okay? This hell is mis, mistranslated here. The Hebrew is Sheol. Now listen to this in the ESV. The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. Okay, so we have two radical different pictures here, right? The wicked shall be turned into hell and the wicked shall return to Sheol. Two two very, very different pictures, okay? Now, what's Sheol? Do we know that? Probably not. Most of us don't. It's the grave, okay? So... The, the Hebrew is saying the wicked will return to the grave. Now we'll get more into that next week. I just wanted to show you how like hell is just, it's not in there. It's an English word. Okay. Um, as far as I can tell, there's Sheol, there's Hades, there's Gehenna, Lake of Fire, the Valley of Hinnom. A lot of times all those have been translated to hell. It's not like uh, Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom, this was a place in outside of Jerusalem. It's argued that it could have been a, a garbage dump where everything was burnt. But in the Old Testament, it's part of the Valley of Hinnom where people were slaughtered. and Babies were sacrificed, actually. Okay, so we'll get more into that, though. Okay, so what we have to ask then is where did the, the, this doctrine that humanity has an eternal nature that transcends death come from? Okay. And it first appeared among the ancient Egyptians. And this philosophy then was examined by the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, okay? So we have Plato. Most of us know that word, right? That guy Plato. He is created with modifying the Egyptian philosophy of man having two natures, all right? Man has two natures, and so that it could be incorporated into... The religion of the Greeks makes sense. Plato taught that man had a nature that lived on after death and went on to a higher plane of being. Now, the teaching then of the Greek philosophers found its way into Jewish society about 300 years before Jesus was born. Okay, now. Um, this happened through the Pharisees and the Hellenization movement, okay? And so then the early converts to Christianity brought the Greek philosophy of the eternal soul into the church. And so your first, one of your first well-known Christians is Origen. He was the first person to attempt to organize uh, a systematic theology. He admired Plato. He believed in the immortality of the soul and that it would depart to either an everlasting reward or an everlasting punishment at death. So this continues a while, and then we come to Augustine. I don't like Augustine, to be honest with you. Oh, man. I've mentioned him. Throughout the time I've been here. I know from from my side, my view of things, he gets a bad rap. Because he was a philosopher, turned Christian. And he brought philosophy in to his Christianity. Okay? He wrote like 93 books. (laughs) Okay? On theology, philosophy, scripture, ethics, all this stuff. Highly influential. All right? Psalm... I, and this isn't just a generic statement. I know somebody who said this to me recently. Augustine is probably the greatest theologian that has ever existed since the Apostle Paul. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> really? Very smart, yes, but very platonic, okay? People say that, though. I disagree, okay? Anyhow, Augustine became the first Christian theologian to write a biblical defense of the view of unbelievers that the lost would suffer forever in hell, and he had responses to a number of objections to this, okay? Now, Augustine declared, that is for the bodies of the lost, that God will miraculously preserve them to be alive, so that they can suffer endlessly in the flames of hell. And he argued that the physical flames of hell will torment immaterial evil spirits, which kind of doesn't make sense. I don't know. How can you burn an immaterial thing? I don't know. But then he said then that, that punishment will not be temporary because Scripture calls the punishment eternal. Okay? So for Augustine, death meant... Uh, the destruction of the body, but the conscious soul would continue to live in either a blissful state with God or an agonizing state of separation from God. OK, so it, it, one of his famous books is called City of God. It, it has the, the a whole list list of all the proof texts for this doctrine of immortality and of eternal torment. It came out and emerged and it became, because of the major influence, his work then became the standard. Okay, so now I found a quote uh, from another book on like what, like all this history. Um, and it says this, it was Augustine's formulation of Christian uh, Platonism that w- was to permeate virtually all of medieval Christian thought in the West. So enthusiastic was the Christian integration of the Greek spirit that Socrates and Plato were frequently regarded as divinely inspired pre-Christian saints. That's ridiculous. So we have people saying Socrates and Plato were Divinely inspired pre-Christian saints. No, they were Greek philosophers. And then to wrap it up, I believe Thomas Aquinas comes along. He offered this solidified doctrine then of the immortal soul. And he taught that the soul is a conscious intellect, will not and cannot be destroyed. Okay, so a few centuries after that, we have the Reformation takes place. They generally accepted these views and it be, they became entrenched into our teaching. Okay, so for the most part, this is then what the church today continues to believe. But we have to ask, is it biblical? In the Old Testament, there is no idea whatsoever of a body and soul as two distinct and different aspects of a human being. Okay? A living man or woman is seen as a unified, organic being described in Hebrew as nefesh. Nefesh has a lot of different meanings. We'll get into it in, in a minute, but it refers to human life in general. Now, the Jewish encyclopedia says this, that the belief that the soul continues its existence uh, after the dissolution of the body is a matter of philosophical and theological speculation rather than of simple truth. And it is accordingly nowhere taught in Holy Scripture. The International Bible Encyclopedia says, we are influenced always more or less by the Greek platonic ideal that the body dies, yet the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. Okay. So there's way more I could share. That's, that's just the, the snapshot, if you will, on the history of that. Okay. I believe that's enough for the, our purpose to ask, then, does the Bible teach that man has an immortal soul? No, I don't think so. Although most people believe that Adam was created as an eternal being, the Bible does not teach this. I'm convinced of it. If he were eternal, what was the purpose of the tree of life in the garden? You know, turn to Genesis 3. I know it seems like we go here a lot. Right, we always go back to the beginning. We got to go back there. But I, I believe absolute proof that, that that Adam was created mortal is found in Genesis three, and we'll be looking at uh, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. My voice. Genesis 3, 22, 23... Then the Lord God said, behold, this is after they've eaten the fruit, right? Of knowledge of good and evil. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So what did man have to do to live forever? Right? Anyone? You can answer. He had to eat the tree of life. Does that take care of the soul part? You know? Well, Adam was created mortal. He had to have always been sub- sub- subject to death. All right? However, in, in establishing the tree of life, okay, God had given him the means to procure everlasting life. Adam sinned in eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. And for this was subject to condemnation, which is death, eternal death. It's a spiritual death. Man was put out of the garden because of a sin and was not allowed to eat of the tree of life. To live forever. Tree of life, representative of, of eternal life, right? Before the fall, human beings had the potential to become immortal. They had the potential to become something more than what they were. As a consequence of this rebellion, of this sin, that opportunity was taken away. Now, God had warned them that dis- disobedience would result in death, right? Genesis two sixteen and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you sure, you shall surely die. A lot of people argue over this. <laughs> I've had so many Facebook arguments, not arguments, but debates over it. It's like spiritual death. All right. From the moment they ate of the tree, they were separated from God. They suffered death from uh, from communion with Him. If God meant to physically die in that day, it's obviously that Adam did not physically die. Nor can we side, try to sidestep this and say the physical clock started ticking down then, right? And it took how many years? <laughs> how many years? Because he lived like what? Somebody. Yeah, it was 900-something. We don't know how old it. What he was when this happened. But in that day you shall surely die. Oh, physical clock. And goes on like 800-some-odd years, you know? No. Like, if it meant physically die in that day, and he says that, right? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then God lied if it meant physical death, Right? Also, moreover, if Adam, the head of all humanity, which we all stem from, was created with an eternal soul or or immortal, then it was just an empty threat. Right? So look at the creation of man in Genesis 2, 7. When it says the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So here we... This word again. The word for creature is nefesh. It's been uh, translated in various ways as being, as life, and soul. But it is never equivalent to the Greek platonic concept of the soul as an Im- immaterial, invisible, immortal being. Instead, It refers to us as whole beings. So each person, all of us, are creatures. And we are comprised of dust of the earth and the life-giving breath of God and not a combination of two or three separate entities like body, soul, and spirit, or mind and will, emotion, stuff like that. Okay, so this helps us understand death. If you take away the body or the breath of life, there's no longer a living creature. Right? So I think it's with Genesis 2 7 in mind. If you, if you look at it, Ecclesiastes, okay, that with Genesis 2 7, the writer of Ecclesiastes in twelve seven 7 says, says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it, the breath. Okay, in Genesis 2 7, God takes dust, forms a man, breathes into him the breath of life the man comes to life in Ecclesiastes things go back to a former state the dust returns to the earth the breath of life goes back to God who breathed it out so it's as if Genesis 2-7 had never happened All alright So reading those two texts side by side makes it, to me, it makes it obvious that the writer of Ecclesiastes is is describing the undoing of Genesis 2-7. Man was made in creation and is unmade in death, right? It's not survival, this is man's undoing. Look at 12-6 of Ecclesiastes. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the will broken at the cistern. Death is being compared to a cord that snapped or severed, a broken bowl, a shattered pitcher, or a broken will in the well. When we die, our bodies go back to, uh, back to where they were before, the dust of the earth. That's what it's saying. That's where we come from. That's where we go. And there's no thought, no thought of the immortality of the soul here at all. So humanity is not naturally immortal. The Old Testament teaches that in the beginning, man was kicked out of the garden. So he would not eat from the tree of life because if he did, he would live forever. God did not want him immortal. Humanity is headed towards death. It's a normal thing, Right. The first death followed by a second death. It's a whole other thing. But man by nature is not mortal. Now, if we were to never physically die, I know I've said this before, but if we were never meant to do that, Jesus came to redeem everything that was lost in the garden at the fall, then as believers placed in Christ, we would never die physically. But we still do. Physical death is still a part of life. Right? Right? Adam was going to die anyway. I mean, Jesus was a baby. He crawled. He learned how to walk. He went through puberty. He turned into a man. He aged. It's a part of life. Like, I believe death is natural. God created it that way. If that was something that was not supposed to happen, it would be received back to us when we gave our lives to Christ. Okay, so the Hebrew word soul means a breathing creature. All right. Vines defines it as the essence of life, the act of breathing, taking breath. And the problem with the English term or the word soul is that no actual equivalent of that term or the ideal behind it is represented in the Hebrew language at all. The Hebrew system of thought does not include the combination of. Or opposite, uh, opposition of the body and the soul, which are really Greek and Latin in origin. It's just not there. So in the two Old Testament, it never means immortal soul. It is essentially the life principle or the living being or the self as the subject of appetite, emotion, things like that. Man was not created Immortal. The scriptures teach that only God, the Godhead alone, is immortal as we saw earlier. Okay, And there we see this principle that the Godhead is the only being in the universe who has this. Who is immortal. Who has immortality. His immortality is exclusive to him. It's an attribute. In that respect, he is different from all other beings, right? In the Bible, the word for immortal, it's athanasia. It is never used as an attribute of anyone else but God. All right? It's all, and this is also used in this in 1 Corinthians 15, in that uh, 53 through uh, 54, where it says, For this perishable body... Now pay attention when... Body, okay... For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body... I'm almost done, son. Okay? I know, it's hard. You hear me talk at home? and You got to hear me talk here? (laughs) This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body... All right, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is walled up in victory. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Besides just saying mortal, imperishable, and all this, uh, the word body is added. There is no Greek equivalent in the original text. It's not there. Translators, for some reason, added the word body. Okay? So, that's interesting to me. But God alone is immortal. So something will have to change in order for human beings who are perishable and mortal to become immortal. And that change takes place in being born again and placed in Christ. It's a free gift of eternal life. Immortality or eternal life is an exclusive attribute of God, but a hope for humanity, for all those who believe in him. So being born again in a relationship with God is the only means of that hope, right? Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That's 1 John 5, 12. In 2 Timothy 1 8 through 10, it says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through. The appearing of our Savior Christ, Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus abolished death and brings immortality to those who believe. So only the Christian has eternal life. Only the believer has immortality. All right. So the doctrine uh, that all men have an eternal soul is platonic, all right? It's not biblical at all, all right? So what about then the unbelievers? What about eternal conscious torment, okay? Well, we had to establish this so we can look at that in the next week and the next week after probably, okay? But I, I will just tell you now, all right, that I and many others believe that the church's doctrine of eternal torches torment comes from mostly it does and people will tell you it comes from dante's inferno all right are you guys familiar with that book dante's inferno it's a book it's not real it's this guy's story about these different levels of hell you know Uh, you get the phrase uh it's cold as hell it's because The lowest level of hell is actually ice in Dante's Inferno, right? Where you're frozen, okay? That's where this comes from, I believe. It's the worst place. That's reserved for the worst of sinners. It's just a book. It's Paradise Lost, like, all that stuff, okay? A lot of it comes from that, okay? More than it does from the Bible, okay? I believe a lot of it also, originally, was to keep people in fear and bondage, okay? But we're going to be looking at this. Uh, But uh, the view I hold on to is called conditional immortality because I'm a mortalist. I don't believe that we are immortal unless we are in Christ. I believe our immortality is conditional. All right. Um, Some can refer to it as annihilationism, but conditional immortality seems to play uh, a little bit better, I think, in, in terms. But what does that mean? And we'll explore it. It means that eternal death is just that. There's still a place. There's a judgment and there's still a casting away. I don't know what happens. But something happens to where that person is death for eter- in death or is dead for eternity. I don't know the exact process. Bible's not clear. But something happens that a state of death lasts for what? Eternity. And that's what I believe and that's what I will ex- explore and share with you guys in the next couple of weeks. Because this is another view that, of hell that does exist and it, it is accepted. It's not heretical, okay? <laughs> if it was, I wouldn't hold it. <laughs> and that's where, that's where I stand and that's where we're going to explore.